Warning, this show contains childish adult content and is intended for immature, mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The views spoken are ours and ours alone, not those of any other bugger. If you're easily offended, we strongly suggest finding another podcast. Everybody neat and pretty, then on with the show. of this after dark i am nick and uh, this evening or uh, this afternoon or this morning whatever time you're listening to us because that's the joys of podcasting um we have with us the following people we have mr paul washington hello we have mr chris ripley hello we have mr paul dolan good evening saving the best for last of course <laughs> mr amanda aka boston white hi and there is no Craig, so if you love Craig more than you love us and you want to switch off, now would be a good time to do so if I didn't tell you that we, we had a, a mega star of a guest. Is that, is that selling him short even? I don't know, but um, we, do, we are joined by a very special guest. Um, so if you'd like to uh, introduce yourself to us, please. Uh, hi, uh, my name's Ron Schneider. And um, probably best known for being the original Dream Finder at Epcot Center, but I've been in theme parks for 40 years, and I've uh, got quite a history with them, and I uh, just love talking about it. Brilliant. So I'm sure there'll be lots of people listening that um, will, will know some of Ron's story, um, as well as that, there'll be people, of course, that don't necessarily know that. So we are going to talk about that in just uh, a little bit. Uh, but first of all, we do always start the show, and uh, I forgot to mention this to Ron, um, by me asking the question, um, what is everybody drinking? Any takers to, to shout out first? I've got a strawberry watermelon uh, mixed uh, powdered drink that I'm going through. Nothing strong. Now, I've been doing this podcast for, uh, if Craig was on the show, he'd be able to tell me this now. But it's got to be about four years or so, maybe five years. That is the first time the guest has answered before anybody else. <laughs> I love it. You have to coax this out of people most of the time. That's brilliant. So, um, so that, that, that's a soft drink, I take it. That's not an yeah, alcoholic exactly beverage. Is, yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, I'm, I'm actually on the soft stuff myself tonight. I'm, uh, I've just got some cherry. It goes open in the fridge. I've just got a little bit left of cherry Pepsi Max, which is probably really flat now, actually. It's been open a couple of days, but never mind. Um, Mr. Washington, what are you after? Uh, orange squash. Hmm. Very exciting. Nothing but exciting on this show tonight. And Mr. Ripley? Uh, I'm on the Evion. Evion? Yeah. Oh, I like Roxy Music. Uh, other <laughs> mineral waters are available. Yeah, with varying degrees of tastiness. What's that about? I mean, Who surely knows? water should, like, bottled water should just taste like bottled water, but it doesn't, does it? They have water sommeliers now. Do they really? In London, really? yeah. My, uh, yeah, you'll, you'll probably hear a lot tonight about the craziest stuff we do in England, you know, otherwise, other than just leaving Europe. Um, I always, talking about strange jobs like that, do you know, I always wanted, I, didn't, I don't even know if this is a job, but I thought an ideal job for me would be to name the shades of paint. 
Because they're so <laughs> random, aren't they? Like they just none of it makes sense. You know, the what one... part of that job would be coming up with so many synonyms for white. That's what, yeah, apple Peruvian white. What's that? <laughs> who, who knows what that is? No one knows what that is. You know, or lime mint apple. What? That's nothing. That's just three words you stuck together. That makes no sense. Uh, Amanda. I'm wild tonight. I'm having some mango and raspberry cider. Oh, there we go. Yeah, so you guys are my designated drivers tonight. <laughs> We're all going to be like, it's going to be the fight about who drives you home, which sounds a lot more sinister than it is, actually. Because, uh, you know, we've, we've seen we've seen Amanda's fella, and, and you know, no one's going to mess with, no one's going to mess with him. <laughs> Mr. Dolan, what about yourself? He's lent on that pause button again, isn't he? Oh, have, you, have you muted yourself again, Mr. D? Either that he's already under the table. Yeah, something about technology. <laughs> something about technology, I don't know. Right, well, I'm sure he will tell us once uh, once he can hear us, or once his microphone's working, I'm sure he'll be able to uh, tell us what he's drinking. However, uh, we've already established, or, or just leave the conversation. I'll invite him back in a second. <laughs> he must be on a naughty step. Um, right, so we've already um, established, um, well, you know, you mentioned in your introduction there about your original role as a dream finder now i've got to be completely honest um i never went to disney world until 2007 so um my knowledge of figment in, in terms of what I've, I've i've experienced with my own uh self is is the the second incarnation um of of that ride um the journey into imagination uh which i know is is slightly different so I, I am aware of of um, the history of the ride to some degree, but um, you know there are people. Well, there would have been people on this on this uh, recording if they didn't leave the call, um, who who did experience the original version with yourself. But for those people that um, are like me, um, not aware of of how the attraction started and your connection, would you just say a little bit about that, please? I'd be delighted. Uh, when Epcot originally opened, it was a very different kind of park. It was what they called an, uh, an um, inspirational park. It wasn't so much about entertainment like the Magic Kingdom. It was more about uh, communicating with people and talking to them about your place in the world. So we had the Future World had a series of pavilions that uh, uh, dealt with different aspects of life on the planet energy, transportation, uh, under the seas, and one of those was the journey into imagination, uh, because imagination is where all everything else comes from. And there was, in this park, no Mickey Mouse, no Donald Duck, no Goofy. It was a brave thing for the Imagineers to do, and for the top management at Disney to do, to agree to open a park that was not going to have any Mickey Mouse in it. Uh, the only characters that uh, there were, figurehead characters for Epcot Center, were the hosts of the Journey into Imagination, which was this uh, wonderful ride. It had more special effects in it than all of Walt Disney World did when it opened in 71. Wow. And it was a story of this uh, crazy old guy called the Dreamfinder. And he would, at the top of the ride, he's flying through the air in his dream-catching machine, collecting sparks of inspiration. And out of these sparks of inspiration, he creates his sidekick, which I think everybody's pretty much uh, familiar with, Figment, Little Purple Dragon. And uh, together, Figment and the Dreamfinder take off to the different realms of creativity, literature, art, uh, science, technology. And um, 
they use the sparks they collected in the first scene to create new and wonderful things in those different realms. And in this way, the audience on the ride learns about the process of imagination. And then when you come off the ride, there we are. Dream Finder's walking around with Figment tucked under his arm, and we're posing for pictures. And uh, you can find uh, a lot of pictures of Dream Finder and Figment out there. The ride closed in 1998 and uh, reopened uh, about a year later with, uh, without Dreamfinder and without Figment, and the characters were so beloved, the original ride was so beloved, that there was a big furor, and so they closed that ride after about a year, and uh, did another version of the same one that had Figment in it, but Figment no longer had the Dreamfinder with him. He no longer was a, a charming and lovable character. He was more of a pest, like he is now. And um, ever since then, people have been carrying on about Bring Back Dreamfinder and Figment. Uh, when I was, at, I was working at Disneyland in the Golden Horseshoe Review, uh, doing a Wild West saloon show as a comic there. <clears throat> and when I saw a sketch of Dreamfinder and Figment before Epcot opened, and I realized that's something I wanted to do. So I uh, got in touch with the people who were responsible and got myself the job as being the first person to portray the Dreamfinder at the pavilion. And so I walked around in this outfit with a false beard, wig, and mustache, a beautiful blue uh, tailcoat, and uh, this uh, purple dragon on my arm that uh, two of us went out and entertained people and kind of played creatively with them to expand on the themes that were present in the ride and that are present in Epcot Center about uh, drawing, out, uh, drawing out people's creativity and uh, giving them a, uh, an idea of how that works in the world. And that's the short answer. Is that is it slightly wrong of me to be disappointed that you had a false beard? Um, Am I the only one? I, I get. I as a matter of fact, when I got the job, I had a beard. Um, <laughs> the I and I have a beard now, or I, I did until just recently. Um, and the thing about uh, that is, uh, the Dreamfinder's beard was be- was very full and beautifully curled. And if I had used a real beard, I would have had to sleep every night in curlers on my face. Uh, which is no way to go around. So, no, I didn't mind the false beard at all. The false beard actually had a couple of elastic straps, so I didn't have to glue it on. It just went up underneath the wig. I had to glue the mustache on, though. Uh, (laughs) But uh, the other thing about wearing a false beard is that freed me up to do other things for the company. So I was doing convention shows and playing different characters and doing uh, other work for the company that I couldn't have done if I'd uh, just looked like a Dreamfinder. It's a valid point. Um, I mean, going back to your comment about... um, curlers wearing curlers now i don't know because uh, we some of us know um the areas where we all come from or where we still reside now um but i come from a place in england called essex <laughs> and uh, it's quite common actually and in fact uh, joking aside uh last week last weekend um to see a woman walking around the town center with uh, curlers in her hair not in a beard, mind you. So, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Times have changed. But, uh, again, I understand it would restrict you to uh, to doing other things. So maybe it was best it was a false beard, actually. But um, how long were you doing that role for? I was there for the first five years of Epcot Center. So I was there from uh, the opening in 1982 till about uh, May of 1987. Okay. Okay. And... Um, before we deviate off a little bit, um, you have written a book yes. about this experience, haven't you? Uh, well, it's about my entire, uh, it's a 40-year memoir about my career in theme parks. It's called From Dreamer to Dreamfinder, 
a life and lessons learned in 40 years behind a name tag. And it's a combination of a memoir about the different part jobs I've had and also a, a textbook about how to uh, write and perform and produce themed entertainment, the principles behind it, because I, as I grew up going to the parks and I'm such a fan, I would see these shows that just people didn't obviously know how to write for the parks, how the audiences' minds work, and I've learned a lot through the years. So I set that forth in the book. And it's up on, my, on Amazon and BNN, and it's published by uh, Bamboo Forest Publishing, and you can go to their webpage, and if you order it there, they'll send you an autographed copy. Wow. I do like, there's something about an autographed copy. I do have an autographed copy of a book we'll be discussing later, actually. Mm -hmm. Won't we, won't we, Mr. Ripley, without <laughs> uh, without uh, jumping the gun too much. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there is something about having a signed book. And also, um, this is a question I've asked other people as well, So because um, I think it's, it's relevant. Obviously, you can buy your book at these other outlets, um, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, but is it better for you commercially to buy direct from the publisher um i'm not sure actually uh, <laughs> i know that i know that uh the book is quite a bit cheaper if you order it on amazon yeah but look we're not um, interested we're not interested in saving people money i'm right. interested in putting dollars in your pocket yeah. uh probably probably it's, it's better for me if you order through bamboo forest publishing but um save quite a bit of money and also at amazon they've got Oh, sorry, we had a, a bit of a technical dip there. So you were saying about Amazon? Oh, oh. Nick? Yep, I think it's just you and me. No, oh, I'm here. I'm back. I'm here. <laughs> I don't know. What's going sorry, on? Sorry, guys. Sorry, guys. I completely lost the blooming internet. <laughs> you lost the internet? I did, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I to... thank God you <laughs> found it. <laughs> to reboot the router. Well, I, as I was saying, there's on Amazon, you can also get the digital copy of the book and you can get the audio book, which is nine hours of me talking. Nine hours. Now, yes. um, I was actually reading this. Is, this goes off on a tangent, which <laughs> can you believe, you know, are we surprised that I'm about to go off on a tangent? No, of course we're not. not That's what I normally do. Um, I was reading about um, an actor called Jim Dale. Who's oh, obviously yeah. quite familiar with Disney audiences uh, in, in uh, the original Peach Dragon, i.e. the one that doesn't look like a load of crap. Um, but he does the audiobooks in America for Harry Potter. For Harry Potter. Now, in the UK, we have um, Stephen Fry do the audiobooks, don't we? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I know where you're going with this. <laughs> do you? Yeah. Well, I, I, I actually don't know where I'm going with this. So if you want to, if you want to tell everyone else where I'm going with it, I'll no, appreciate it. No, 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 I don't know. Does where it include Columbus? No. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. No, I see where you was going with that. No, I wasn't actually. Or no, girls, or nurse, or doctor, or no, again. No, there was no, there was no carry on. I wasn't going to carry okay. on with it. But, um, <laughs> but I was, I was, um, I saw a video of him. Um, a, a reading, I think it might have been when they launched the last Harry Potter book, and so they did like a. Um, I, I don't know if it was a signing as such, but he was doing a reading in a in a bookshop in front of an audience, and uh, it was mesmerising. Watched him do all the different uh, voices. Mm -hmm. That was that's what that's what got me. So my question to you, having done a, a nine hour nine hour audio recording of your book. Did you do any different voices during it, or was it just your, your voice the whole way through? 
It was uh, it was just my voice. Yeah, the only the only other voice I did was the Dreamfinder voice, which <laughs> I just dropped in when it was appropriate. <laughs> which I think I think so. <laughs> it's quite it's quite infectious, isn't it? Actually, <laughs> really jump in it. Jump in ahead, Ron. Have, have you got your Walt Disney voice sorted yet? Uh, oh, yeah. That's an interesting question. Um, we should tell people out there that I'm also uh, I've been working on a film uh, called The Further Adventures of Walt's Frozen Head. Yes. Now, in which in which I'm playing the title role. Now we actually had on. Um, and he's going to kill me now because I've forgotten what his name is. Ben Livingston. Uh, ben ben. Uh, Lancaster. Yes, of course, Ben. Um, we had him on when he did the first Kickstarter, I think. Uh-huh. It was either the first or second Kickstarts. No, I think it was the first Kickstarter, wasn't the it? First one, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we all signed up, didn't we? We did. We all we all actually. It's the first time um, we've all contributed to the same Kickstarter, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a shame it wasn't before we had the new members of the team because then there'd have been even more people to have uh, contributed. But um, no, well, you'll be relieved to know that the second Kickstarter it wraps up in a couple hours and we're uh, about a thousand dollars short. So when we hang up here, feel free to kick in. Right. Okay. No problem. We'll put the feeders out on uh, on the Facebooks and the Twitters um, because uh, yeah, I mean it, it's I, I mean he he was telling us about the the film. Um, so was, oh, what was it about? It must have been about a year and a half ago now, maybe. Yeah. Or so. Yeah, it must be. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it was brilliant. It captured our imagination and um, actually seeing some of the uh, the rushes from it, you know, it, it's brilliant. But you know, obviously the the thing that they've not been able to show so far is um as you've just said your contribution to it as as uh the voice of, of walt and um I, I i assume as well we'll see your face as well oh yeah yeah uh they shot when they shot the film um they had this uh, metal canister that contains walt's head and they put a green card in there so that they could later on map walt disney's head into it and then they had this bag they were carrying around the magic kingdom when they were taking walt around and that also had a green card in it, so when they wanted to, they could put Walt's head in it. They just didn't have a Walt Disney yet. And it was uh, a couple of months ago, uh, Ben Lancaster got in touch with me and asked me if I'd be interested in playing the role, so I turned in a video audition. And uh, over the last two weekends, uh, we shot all of uh, my footage, and um, they've started inserting it into the footage that they already had. Oh, and uh, this will be the, the beginning of the post-production process. Like I say, we're having a Kickstarter right now to help us get a musical score and color correction and all the different elements they need to really polish the film up. Uh, but as far as a Walt Disney voice is concerned, I was I was thinking about that. I spent a lot of time listening to um, Walt. I spent a lot of time listening to Tom Hanks, who yes. I thought did a wonderful job of. Well, no, he didn't exactly sound like Walt Disney. He had that that kind of attitude uh, yeah. that I wanted to capture. But uh, then when I shaved off my beard uh, a couple weeks ago and um, got a look in the mirror and was surprised at how much I already looked like Walt. So (laughs) then I went into, we had a makeup test. We had a wonderful professional uh, makeup artist come in. And she did work on me for about uh, an hour and a half. I had to alter my hairline and uh, and dress me up. And uh, it just worked. It just completely worked. I looked like Walt. Surprised the hell out of me. And um, so in working on the in the shoot over the last couple of weekends, I, I came to the realization that it wasn't as important for me to sound like Walt as it was for me to uh, 
react as Walt would after 40 years in, in hibernation. Yep. Uh, we're not trying to recreate what Walt was in 1966. We're trying to show you what Walt Disney would be like in uh, 2016 uh, if he was revived every year for three days a year. Yeah. And um, so I pretty much, I, 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 I kind of made a little more gruff, my voice a little more gruff, as if I'd been smoking two packs a day. And um, I just reacted to the things that happened in the story in a natural way. And I let the, the look of the character uh, carry it. And everyone that's seen uh, pictures of what I look like uh, have been amazed with this, even me. Did you do your own stunts, Ron? Pardon? Did you do your own stunts as Walt's head? Yes, I did my own stunts. I, 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 I cut off my own head. <laughs> and, uh, and put it put it in the case there, and they carried it around for a while. And I, I sat off to the side, just waiting for my next cross. Amazing. Yeah, because Ben Ben did talk about because um, the film, they, like the, the principal filming, had been done um, when the, the, the Kickstarter was going on. So he was talking to us about how um, he'd gone around the parks. He, he told us a few hairy stories of um, you know when when the uh, the jig was almost up, as it were. Um, a yeah. few times they almost got caught, so um, it was very entertaining to hit to hear about that. And uh, yeah, the the uh, the hold all um, that's obviously the main prop in the film uh, as well. So um, that's great. What's the um, what's the ETA on that? Is it is it scheduled to come out early next year? Is that is that right? I can't remember now. They, they just swallowed hard and decided to announce that the film is there's going to be the premiere of the film will be on December third of this year wow they're not talking about a general release until spring of 2017 yeah but they seem to think that with all that all the elements will be ready to show it to the backers the kickstarter people um and send them uh at least a, a portion of the film uh, around december 3rd mm. i hope uh, i hope our invitation to the premiere has our plane tickets and hotel accommodation as well it's a little bit oh, far to travel you know from England. All the more reason you should contribute to this Kickstarter. <laughs> I tell you what, he's he, he, he's a born salesman, isn't he? As, as well as everything else he's ever done, clearly a yeah. born salesman. Excellent. Well, I was assuming between Paul, Chris, and Amanda, they were going to knock up that thousand dollars by the end of the show. But hey, I might be wrong there. I believe. Has <laughs> anyone got got Craig's credit card details? I'm sure there's some money yeah. in the pot from our sponsors. So, uh, probably not enough to contribute to that fully, but you know, you never know. Um, excellent. Well, actually, speaking of sponsors, I suppose we actually better uh, mention uh, the first of our sponsors. And uh, I'm going to go over to you, Mr. Ripley. Um, we won't talk about the other thing, but we'll talk about the, the thing that you are involved in. And he's doing very, very, very well at the moment, flying up the iTunes charts. Uh, yeah, ScareZone, the podcast with uh, Logan Seculo and uh, Scotty Tuhotti and I. Um, yeah, big shout out to ScareZone. Um, we got a, uh, we've just done a huge episode with Mike Aiello that almost went viral. We couldn't believe it. Um, and we've got interviews in the bag. We're just lining up some. Oh, if you thought Mike Aiello was a one, and he is a one. We found AAA1 and AAAA1 as well. Yeah. I, I didn't think we were talking about me. I get them in the studio. So. I, I didn't think we were talking about me um, coming on the show. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's quite a bit <laughs> There's me blowing my trumpet. Um, but, yeah, I mean, uh, 
uh, yeah, the download figures for for your episode wouldn't it come out last Friday? Was it last Thursday? Uh, it was um, Tuesday or Wednesday this week. Yeah, and uh, yeah, but yeah, it, it seems to have gone, done great guns. So uh, congratulations on that. I think it was just the synergy. We we'd sort of spoke to Mike ahead of time, and we yeah. knew when. Halloween Horror Nights was going to release a load of information, so we kind of had it so we would release right at the cusp, and then you no, know we would sort of why you know ride that wave of uh, interest basically. I think it was good to kind of um, to do that before um, you know any other hopefuls uh, tried to do a similar kind of stunt. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> On fleek. I plead the fifth. On fleek. Um, <laughs> So that scare zone, which you can find on iTunes and uh, where else? Uh, Google Play. Um, tune in. What's the other one? No, not tune in. Uh, Stitcher. Stitcher. Yes, of course. Yep. Stitcher. Good old Stitcher. So there you go. So that's the scare zone podcast. Now, um, Ron, I think that's probably a good introduction of of your kind of uh, your most famous kind of work, I suppose. Um, or, or, you know, within the Dreamfinder, um, and a bit more about yourself. But um, we know you've done a load of these shows, so we don't want to just spend the whole time talking about that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm going to do I'm going to talk about one more thing to do with within that kind of world of the Dreamfinder and uh, and Epcot and uh, Figment, um, and then we'll kind of move on. So, what were your thoughts? when they changed the ride uh, the first time um, and then obviously the second time as well. What were your initial thoughts when you heard about it and when you experienced it? Um, I was disappointed, uh, very disappointed that they uh, got rid of the characters completely and uh, even more disappointed when I got to ride the uh, new version of the ride. Um, This was uh, the reason they did it. I finally understand is because there's a was in the con the Kodak contract with they have with Kodak that the ride would be renovated every 10 years but at this point it had already been running for 16 years right and they uh, so they shut it down and uh, the plans whatever plans they had got nickeled and dimed and cut back and um, what they was wound up was just a series of special effects on a ride that had no through line and had no particular thought behind it the, uh, I think one of the reasons Dreamfinder and Figment have have lasted in people's memories, the people that knew them, and uh, have endured, is because of the wonderful job that Tony Baxter and the Imagineers did in creating the original story, creating the identification with, with Dreamfinder and Figment. Um, that you, you were there when Dreamfinder created Figment, and the characters were so endearing, and the concepts that were prevented, presented were uh, so powerful. And that's why the characters have lasted. Um, the rides that have been replaced it have uh, not had any of that. They've just been um, special effects and uh, cheap gags. And uh, as a result, uh, when they go through it, it has absolutely no emotional impact. And uh, it's just been a a constant uh, disappointment for me. Cheap gags and Eric Idle. I never thought I'd hear the two things together. (laughs) (laughs) You know how Eric Idle got into this? Go on. They were doing uh, when they replaced Captain EO with uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids or Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. That's right. Yeah, we've, and he was in that. Yep. Yeah. Well, they they didn't have a star for that. They were getting ready to shoot, 
and they didn't have someone to host it, to play the guy who was the head of the Imagination Institute. Michael Eisner was out in Hollywood having dinner one night, and he looks across the restaurant, and there's uh, what the guy. Eric Idle. Eric Idle. Yep. He's, acro he's across the room. And so Eisner goes over and says, listen, what are you doing tomorrow? He says, I got nothing on. He says, well, come I want you to be in this film. And so Eric Idle goes down to Disney, having no idea what they're going to do, and they shot the film, because if you remember the film, or if you ever saw the film, it was done in one take. Um, and they shot the thing with Eric Idle that day, and suddenly he became head of the Imagination Institute. When they decided to uh, put in the new ride, they used uh, Eric Idle as well. And I love Eric Idle and, uh, and all the Pythons, but uh, the, they didn't give him anything to work with here. It's quite funny actually because um, I didn't I didn't actually put the two, well I put the two together in the fact that I knew Eric Idle did Honey I Shrunk the Audience um, mm -hmm. because um, my my home park I suppose our home park really is uh, Disneyland Paris in terms of uh, distance um, uh -huh. and so when Captain EO closed in Disneyland Paris. Um, we, we got Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. Captain EO didn't last anywhere near as long as it did elsewhere because, obviously, Disneyland Paris only opened in 1992. Um, but, obviously, I, I was aware of that. But the whole pre-show stuff about the Imagination um, uh, Centre and everything like that didn't really, or Pavilion, didn't really make any, any sense because um, we didn't have anything else with that. We just had... Uh, the Captain EO cinema, really. We didn't have anything to right. kind of go along with it. So that whole kind of um, backstory, if you want to call it, didn't really make much sense. And by the time... Um, no, when I first went to Florida, it's the 2007, um, Honey, I Shrunk the Audience was still on. But because I didn't actually care for the ride, I didn't go and, and see it again. Um, mm. And so, again, didn't really put the two things together. Except for, I said, I knew that Eric Idle was in... Honey, I shrunk the audience, but that makes much more sense now because essentially he was the head uh, person of that whole area, which yeah. hosted Nick, the two rides. Nick, it's only a model. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it. Yeah, it's um, it's a, it's a it's a funny one, but yeah, I didn't really appreciate Honey, I shrunk the audience. And the thing is, what's I mean, it, it's different for people. So. Um, when Mr. Mr. D, you might have heard dip in and out of this conversation, um, but did you experience the original attraction? No. Dreamfinder? So you didn't either. Okay. No. In fact, when did the when exactly did the Dreamfinder stop at Epcot? It was ninety eight, wasn't it? Ninety eight. Yeah. But do you know? Yeah. Do you remember when in ninety eight? Because ninety eight was the first year that we went to Walt Disney World, but it was October ninety eight. So I think. I think I don't remember Dreamfinder being there. I think we must have just missed that. Oh, okay. Sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that and Horizons way. actually, because I think Horizons shot the same year. I think. Oh. I think that was also '98. So we missed a we missed a couple of classic things there. Yeah, I think Mr. Mm -hmm. Boniface is the only one that did, and you know he's still in was a Russian gulag or something. I God knows where he is. Whoa, hang on. Whoa. Hang on, you, you didn't mention this. So you, you yeah, experienced both rides? Yeah, well, I've, I've experienced all three types of it. Wow. And I feel you, Ron. I'm disappointed uh. now. There's no emotional connection at all anymore, and I don't like it anymore. Yeah. I, mean, I loved it. Obviously, I was a lot younger when Dreamfinder was there. I was eight 
when it when Dream Finder went. But I absolutely loved that ride so so much. Mm. And then when I went back and Figment wasn't there and Dream well Figment was slightly there, but mm. Dream Finder wasn't, I was heartbroken. I was so upset by it. And then last I hadn't been on it again until last year and I'm just, I, it devastates me to go on it because it's just not the same. And this is someone that goes to the park every year. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was just so upset that I just didn't want to go on it anymore. And I feel like I know that people say all the time, oh, what if we could bring Dreamfinder back? And I don't think it would work now because I feel like whoever they brought back, if it wasn't you, Ron, they wouldn't get it. Well, I I think that um, I thank you for that. Uh, there were a lot of uh, fellows who played the Dreamfinder. Um, everybody had their own kind of take on it. One fellow, Steve Taylor, lasted for fifteen years, and he has the scars to prove it. Uh, <laughs> but it, um, I agree about uh, being leery about bringing back the Dreamfinder because they did such a lousy job bringing back Figment. Yeah. Uh, if uh, the same if if Tony Baxter or any of his proteges uh, could be used to, to develop a new ride that brought Dreamfinder back, something that built on the same philosophy uh, and the same mission that the original ride had, I think it could be done and done very well. But um, I'm very skeptical about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree definitely. Because uh, I've got to be honest, that's the thing. I mean, as an experiencing only so. The only version I've experienced as a man, and I think everyone else has on here as well tonight, um, is the version you experienced last year. And I knew that Figment was an iconic character before I went to Disney World. But going on that ride, and I think you summed it up uh, the best earlier on when you said um, about him being more of a pest, that's exactly... I, I saw him as someone annoying, and I thought... How can, yeah. how can this character be so beloved if he's such a pain in the ass? It's a question of how he's treated. Dreamfinder mm. creates a figment in the original ride and cherishes him yeah. uh, and, and uh, carries him through the attraction and uh, finds him exciting and fun to be with. And there's a, there's a mutual respect and love there. Uh, but at the very beginning of the, new, of the current version of the ride, uh, Figment pops up and Eric Idle looks at him and goes, what are you doing here? Go away. And when you do that to any character, the character's going to come off as a pest. Look at uh, Empire Strikes Back. Um, everybody treats uh, C-3PO like a pest, says, shut up, go away. He's beloved in the first film. But in the second film, same character, and everybody thought he was a pest, simply because of the way he was treated. I think, exactly. though, Ron, it's a, it's a great point, but I think had we known that eventually we'd meet Jar Jar Binks... <laughs> no one, no one would have treated C three PO that way, no matter how annoying he was, because they knew what was going to be coming around the corner. <laughs> right, um, <laughs> um, Chris, um, you you said to me that you, you had a couple of questions you wanted to to ask. Yeah, just sort of changing the subject very quickly. Um, I believe you had a bit of a hand in making the Monsters Inc. Laugh Floor attraction. I was one of the opening crew uh, on that on that show. Uh, uh, back in when it opened up in uh, I think 19 or 2006 and I was there for two and a half years yeah wow I was just going to say you know is there any particular stories or anything that, that um, you, of note you could you could tell us about that attraction uh, we were hired in the, they were supposed to start 
uh, training us in the beginning of November. And the ride was supposed to open uh, roughly five months later. We were going to use that, that time in there to um, work on the show system, uh, to work on the scripts, uh, and, and to put everything together. They hired 20 of us, uh, of actor, comic actors in the Orlando area to be on the opening crew. Well, operations, the operation end of the business, uh, had planned to do a, um, a big press event in December, and operations insisted that the ride be open for that press event in December. So they uh, pulled, uh, I think it was uh, 12 of us, off to one side, and um, they took eight of us and trained them on the machine and worked with them on the show. So that they, we called them the space monkeys because they were the ones who were sh shot into space before anyone else was. And they uh, <laughs> ran the ride for the preview in December while the rest of us, uh, they kind of rushed their training while the 12 of us were in a room across the other side of the Magic Kingdom playing improv games for a month and a half. Uh, then finally, uh, once they were ready to go, they brought all of us over, all 20 of us were together uh, in the theater, and we worked together on uh, developing the show. Um, and it was a real, uh, a real process. Uh, you've probably experienced Turtle Talk. Um, mm -hmm. This it was the, the same kind of process, the same kind of mechanism for Turtle Talk, but it was going to be a lot more advanced. You'd have multiple characters, you'd have multiple performers working on the same show at the same time. They were going to have a, a turtle as a rather amorphous form of animation, but here we we're going to have monsters who are going to be portraying uh, emotions, working with props, working with set pieces, and um, all that entailed. So, uh, and they had a they had a rough idea of what the script was going to be, but it was written by uh, Imagineers, who Imagineers are people who have wonderful uh, experience in art and design and technology. Live performance is not their strong suit. And so they brought in these 20 comic actors. A lot of us had theme park experience. <laughs> um, everybody had been performers and could do voices. Uh, and so we kind of collaborated on creating the show as it eventually uh, started. But uh, in that process, in that, uh, that five months that we spent before we opened, we had a lot of chefs. We had a consultant writers come in. We had the Imagineers. We had a guy from Disney Creative Entertainment. There were a lot of chiefs, a lot of chiefs, and there was a lot of information to get down. And so a lot of the stuff that was um, a, a, a certain amount of time to spend spinning our wheels and learning a lot of dealing with a lot of stuff that wasn't going to be important. And finally, we got the thing up on its feet and all the consultants and all the Imagineers and all the technicians went away. And it fell to the 20 of us uh, performers to make this thing work. And that's when it really took off. Um, I love that show, and I love doing the show. And the, the uh, mechanism that they use for the, for the monsters is a delight to play with. It's, uh, it's just one, the greatest toy ever, you'll ever want to have in your life. <laughs> and uh, we had a great time doing the show. You got to play with uh, very, very talented people. And um, I love the characters, and there was a real chance. It, the show is not as improvisational as uh, you might think, and I think they could do a lot, lot more with the show than they have done. Um, they kind of play it uh, pretty safe with the material. 
but um, it still is a joy to do, and uh, we had a great time. Can I ask one question on that, um, which is with regards to the the acting um, of the show, um, what is the uh, the protocol for the voices do they go through a a process so you're not actually doing a voice but it creates a voice D- does that make sense it it makes sense but that's not how it works okay. uh, no we we do we do whatever voices we do we do ourselves we're work we're working with a live mic on a headset and the show in that you're watching in the theater is one tenth of a second behind the show we're doing backstage. So in that one-tenth of a second, the computer syncs up our voices with the lips. It's an automatic process. So um, we don't have to worry about lip sync. The computer does that for us. It's an interesting thing. When we started work on the show, uh, the very early, before, long before we opened, they brought in the lady who uh, is in charge of all Disney studio voices. She oversees all the animation. And she worked with all of us, and for all of the characters, she wanted us to have multiple voices for multiple combinations, and we all had to be able to have these voices, and she was very uh, demanding about this, and everybody worked very hard to make her happy. But the thing that you'll notice about Pixar cartoons, the characters, for the most part, do not have character voices. They have very normal voices. They sound like normal people. And with with very few exceptions, um, they're... they don't sound like cartoon characters. They sound like people, which is one of the reasons it's easy to relate to them. Yeah. So when we... Um, hold on a second. I have the world's worst ringtone. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not convinced. I'm we've, not got a new show, we've got a new show music, I think. I, 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 was, I, was, I don't know what it was, but I was bopping away. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, so th- that was what we wound up doing. The characters came out, uh, wound up coming out a lot more real and a lot more close, quite close to ourselves. With the with the uh, exception of uh, uh, the Wazowski character, the little boy, uh, and only certain ca- and only certain one of the ones of us could do the little boy voice convincingly. And so uh, uh, those are the people who always do the the third act. I always wanted to be that guy, Ron. <laughs> was it was it a particular seat? It looked like it was a, the same seat they got picked. Not at all. Not no? at all. We uh. have we have we can see any seat in the house except the very front row and the very back row. Mm-hmm. So no matter so no matter where you sit, there's a chance that you're going to be that guy. Uh. Uh, generally speaking, um, and I never uh, I never picked that guy. It was always the guy that fell in the other booth, um, but. Um, Generally speaking, you want to be somebody who looks like uh, they won't really want to get into the show, who who who's kind of seems above it all. And we're going to pick somebody like that because then it becomes funny when he gets drawn in and he has fun with it. Uh, so um, daddies that are there for their kids are quite often uh, picked for that guy. Have you ever had anyone get upset about being that guy? Um, <laughs> fun. That's one of the fun things about the show. Um, sometimes you'll call on somebody, you'll have them up at the top of the show, you'll, you'll say, is that guy? And then the person will decide, I'm going to be a smart aleck, and I'm going to move, so they can't find me. And they'll move over a couple seats down. The problem is that we can see them. We can see them moving. And we move the camera, too. And um, so we can follow them around. We have a lot of fun with that when that happens. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> I'm not surprised. That's the, that's the thing that's always kind of got me because uh, I've, I've seen Turtle Talk and in Disneyland Paris we have Stitch Live, which mm-hmm. is Turtle Talk but with Stitch effectively. Right. And a bit more, there's a bit more of a story because you mm-hmm. have to uh, you have to help Stitch escape from the ship at one point. So you have to like shout things and there's like a map and, and all this kind of stuff whilst Turtle Talk is more questions. But um, yeah, I mean, that, that technology uh, fascinates me. So um, before I ask Chris to ask, because uh, I know he's got another question. Um, when he mentioned about uh, Monsters Inc. Laugh Floor, um, I did get slightly concerned. I have to ask this just, just so I know. Um, did you have any involvement with Stitch's Great Escape? <laughs> God no. Okay, Do you think he would admit to it? <laughs> true, mm-hmm. true. Because, because let me, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of just back on that a second because I love Stitch, but that ride sucks completely. Yeah, um, yeah I, I like Stitch Live in Paris. That's pretty good, but that Stitch's Great Escape is just just terrible. Um, yeah, Chris. So you had, you had another thing you wanted to ask. I've, I've got loads, but I'll, I'll hand it over to everyone else in a sec. But I've got one, one last question I wanted to ask because um, it's it's. Oh, right, Columbus. This, this, yeah, yeah, just just mm. one more question. Um, you you did work for Universal Studios for a while, I believe, uh, back in the early days. I just wanted to know what you got involved with in the early days, and whether you did work at all on Halloween Horror Nights. Uh, I wrote all the shows for the very first Halloween Horror Nights, which was called Fright Nights. Oh, um, now now someone tells me. Um, My first job at Universal was I was a Universal Studios tour guide in 1976 out in California. This is back when the tour was all there was. There were no rides, no shows, Um, and uh, the tour was two and a half hours long. You had to know everything there was to know about movies, and it was one of my dream jobs as a child was to be the guy who sat up in the front of the tram and talked for two and a half hours. I love that. I did that for about a year. Um, the next time I was at Universal Studios uh, was in 1980. Um, uh, I was hired at this, on the same day by both Disney and Universal. Uh, for Disneyland, I was working at the Golden Horseshoe Review, but at uh, Universal, they were opening a $3 million theme restaurant called Womp Hopper's Wagon Works. It's a big Western-themed show uh, with uh, great barbecue food, live country Western music, which was very big back then. And the theme was it was a wagon factory. And the uh, being run by the biggest crooked car dealership you've ever seen in your life, and this this real sleaze of a salesman named C. L. Womphopper. Uh, I was doing I was working at Magic Mountain doing a, a street show, doing a medicine pitch, uh, selling Grandma Spillikins Herbal Cure and Indian Elixir. And Jay Stein, who was the president of Universal Attractions, saw me and said, "This guy's perfect for Womphopper." So. In 1980, I came over and uh, opened Mom Popper's Wagon Works, and I was creative manager there uh, for about a year and a half. This is how long I lasted with, with Universal. Then, um, and then I came to uh, Florida to do Dreamfinder in 19. I left Dreamfinder in 2000. Or sorry, 1997, and um, I went to, no 1987. I'll be all right. And uh, a couple of years later, I was on the opening crew of Universal Studios Florida. And I was in charge of the celebrity lookalikes. I was the creative manager for them. So I hired and wrote for the Laurel and Hardy, the Blues Brothers, the Marx Brothers, Marilyn Monroe, W.C. Fields. Um, all of those characters uh, were under me. And uh, I started with writing and managing them. 
And then uh, about the middle, uh, after a couple of years with them, uh, we had the very first Fright Nights. And I wrote uh, the, uh, the, a couple of the shows for that. We did a, a Chainsaw Massacre in New York City, uh, which was kind of a funny show. And we did the show at the Bates Motel with the Blues Brothers, Norman Bates, and uh, Beetlejuice. And uh, that's, uh, the, that was the very first year that uh, they did a Halloween well, Chris, I don't, I don't think there's any better segue we're going to get tonight than this following <laughs> one. So we have a new sponsor for this show, and for the next, yes, we do, and for the foreseeable future. Um, and again, Mr. Ripley, it goes over what, to you. What happened, what happened to Wendy? We like Wendy's still our sponsor as well. But oh, what okay. I'm saying is, whilst Wendy would go in this section, I don't think you'll get a better segue ever in any podcast episode possibly ever again as good as this one right now yeah, well, i don't gonna... want to talk about my book i want to hear what ron's got to say tough you're <laughs> going to talk about sell your book one okay, sold uh, book you okay. sell your book complete survivor's guide halloween horror nights goes through all the history of halloween horror nights plus a guide for the coming year um buy it on amazon barnes and noble blah 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 um <laughs> yeah. It's good. Amanda does loads of videos about it, so it's got to be good. I love this book, but I'm a bit heartbroken that Nick's got an autographed copy and I haven't. Oh. Okay, no. I'll send you one. Don't worry. Sorry, I'll just bring my copy to our tour. I'll sign it there in person. There you, you can go. Sign it twice. That's, there that, you go. Now, Ron will sign his book if you buy it from the publisher, but that's not in person. Like, he's not going to come to your house, hand deliver it, and sign it. This is an invitation to get a, a signed copy in person. Don't turn that down. <laughs> well, I, I want to know, Rom, when you were a, a tour guide back at um, the backlot on in Hollywood, um, did you have any funny stories or any celebrity encounters or anything? Uh, didn't see a lot of celebrities. Uh, one of my favorite moments, I, two favorite moments, actually. Um, about halfway through the tour, we would get everybody off the tram tour and we would go stand in front of a makeup, one of the uh, dressing trailers, dressing rooms. And we would talk about the star that was in the working, that had worked in the dressing room. There was nobody in there at the time. And we'd walk them through, and then we'd take them through the soundstage. Well, this all took place at what they call the crossroads of the studio. It was right in the middle of um, everything in the studio. It's a big open area that uh, everybody had to cross, kind of crosses through. So I was standing in front of um, uh, the uh, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton uh, dressing rooms. I was up on the porch there, and I've got my microphone. I'm talking to this bunch of people below me. And um, I'm talking to the people, and I'm saying to them, you, you keep an eye out because you're going to see, uh, uh, we could see a star here, which is not exactly true, but you, know, you say it anyway. And this beautiful brunette comes walking by, and I said, are you there, ma'am? Um, are you a star? She goes, uh, well, I'm an actress. I said, uh, may I ask your name? She says, Yvonne Craig. And um, I was a big, big devoted Batman fan back in the 60s. And Yvonne Craig was Batgirl. Um... And I said to everybody, ladies and gentlemen, it's Batgirl. And everybody went crazy. <laughs> that was one story. Uh, the other st story is we were standing, I was standing in front of Lucille Ball's dressing room this time. And uh, behind the crowd, way across the, the uh, crossroads, were the offices of Edith Head, who uh, won um, eight Academy Awards for costuming and is a, an icon in the business. In the film The Incredibles, 
the little lady in that was modeled uh, after me after Edith had. Yes, I heard that. Yeah. And um, her her dress her her offices were behind. It was a big, beautiful, fashionable-looking building. It's actually used for the uh, uh, used in the film Gable and Lombard as um, Clark Gable and Carol Lombard's dressing rooms. So I'm standing there and I'm pointing out the the building there and I'm saying those are the offices of Edith Head. And as I say this, the door opens and Edith Head comes walking out. <laughs> and this is quite a distance from us. And she she goes over to her little pargo or a little electric cart. And and I say as I said, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Edith Head. And she turns around and she had the scarf on. She threw the scarf dramatically over. Her. <laughs> And stuck this magnificent pose on the side of the electric cart before she got in and drove away. Um, so that that was the, the that was the extent of it. Yeah, <laughs> I love that backlot. I mean, I know people get teary over Disneyland, but that backlot for me is just it's just where it all happens. It was that way for me too. Unfortunately, the backlot today does not much resemble what it was back then when it was really being used. They moved all of. Uh, Colonial Street, where all the homes were from the different television series, they moved that up on the top of the hill, and in doing so, kind of ruined the the quality of the buildings. That was now then used uh, for um, uh, the Housewives, um, Desperate Housewives uh, series, and the, uh, of course they had the big fire that destroyed all of New York Street, and Brownstone Street, and uh, all of that's been rebuilt. And so, when you drive down the street, it it, you can say that this is the kind of sets that were being used, but you can't say these were the sets that were used. We, we have a term for that in the UK. It's called uh, Trigger's Broom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, basically, this ca this character called Trigger, he, he had the same broom for 30 years, but he had five new heads and six new handles. But it was the same broom. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> I was when, thinking, uh, I've not heard that term, and I was like, yes, I have. Yeah. <laughs> 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 We went to uh, we went to California for a holiday a couple of years ago. I think it was about two thousand and eight, and we were there for two and a half weeks. And we thought we're we're bound to see some movie stars. Surely we're going to see some movie stars. And the whole two and a half weeks, the only the only person who saw any movie stars was my daughter, who we just came off the tram tour in Universal, and they'd been filming Desperate Housewives on the set. So we saw you know, the, the unit set up with the lights and even though it was broad daylight with the lights and the cables and all of that, but the set was empty. And as the tram pulled in, a couple of the desperate housewives came out of a door, jumped in a limo and were obviously heading back to the set. So we'd, we'd missed it. They'd been at lunch or something like that. But my daughter did see them and I thought, damn, you know, been to Hollywood for two and a half weeks, haven't seen any movie stars. We're in the airport going back and I'm in the queue for like a it's like a fast food place. And the guy from Gladiator, not Russell Crowe, but his sidekick, the guy who betrays him, Quintus, is in the queue beside me. He stood right beside me. Yeah. And um, he, he orders, he, I can't remember what he ordered, but I turned to him and I said, shouldn't that be a Caesar salad? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he looked at me like, what? I went, Gladiator? And he went, oh. And my kids just like shriveled up. <laughs> Dad, no. <laughs> True story. Oh, brilliant. Oh yeah. If we, well, if we're talking about uh, stories that make people shrivel up, then uh, remember to join the unofficial uh, DAD um, army page uh, because uh, if uh, well, some people have already uh, 
seen the photo. I uploaded myself there this weekend, but uh, it's definitely too embarrassing to share publicly. So you have to find our secret group to uh, to see that one. Um, Amanda, I know you had a question to ask as well that ties into what we're talking about now, actually. Yes. So you mentioned that in your book, you have a guide to writing and creating shows. And I know that you had a hand in creating the Blues Brothers show at Universal. So what's what's the process like how does it look to take a movie and turn it into a show that's not like just a shortened version of a movie if you get what I mean so to, to make your audience want to watch it so that it's something different but still encompassing the general theme of the movie that's a wonderful question and um, it's, it's central to what uh, I was one of the reasons I wrote the book because it's easy just to regurgitate the things in the film. And too many theme park shows, uh, they'll take a film and they will just tell the same story that was in the film. Mm-hmm. And uh, it w- winds up becoming like a, a memory checklist for the audience. They just look at it and go, yeah, that was in it, that was in it, that was in it. And it reminds them of the film, but it doesn't capture the film. Uh, for the Dream Fighters, for the Dream Fighters, all right. Uh, for the Blues Brothers, these are uh, outrageous characters. And um, most people knew them. From the movie and I knew that my job was to capture the feeling of the movie the characters had to be rebels they had to be disrespectful they had to be funny they had to be uh, idiocentric Um, they had to be iconoclastic they had to be all these things and I had to create within the audience the desire to dance in the streets because that's what happened in the movie everywhere the Blues Brothers went they had people that the normal people around them would spontaneously react in some kind of violent way, and I knew that that was the point of the show. So when we first, I first got in there, the first thing I did with the Blues Brothers, we put uh, uh, speakers on their car, and we had microphones in the trunk, and they'd park someplace, and they'd take them out, and they would have the music tracks playing, and, and they would uh, sing the songs. But I wanted to do something more. I found a setting; uh, it's the same place they are now on Brownstone Street. And uh, there was this kind of platform where they, it looked like some construction workers had been working. It was right next to a brownstone set of stairs. It was a perfect setting. And um, I could have just put the microphones up there and the Blues Brothers would have sang. And management at Universal would have been very happy with that. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to create a scene uh, with a big uh, purpose and, and to give the audience a role in things. So um, I started the show with uh, this fella coming home from work, and he's dressed in a chef's outfit, and he's um, blowing a sax. And he just come walking down the street, improvising on the sax. And uh, he comes up, and uh, his wife, who is based on um, uh, the uh, waitress character from the Blues Brothers movie, uh, meets him and says, get upstairs and, uh, and start uh, doing such and such for me. And he said, well, no, I got a gig in Chicago. Uh, some friends of mine got me a gig in Chicago, and I got to go, and I got to, uh, I got to play with them. And um, the, she sings a song. She sings "Stand by Me" just for the crowd because there's all the crowds there, and she sees them. And finally, he says, "No, I got to go with these friends." He says, "You're not going, and you're not going anywhere. You're staying here." He says, "Well, my friends are going to take care of this." And as he says this, we hear the Peter Gunn theme, and <laughs> around the corner, a block away, here comes the Bluesmobile, slowly cruising along. And by this time, the audience, you know, they're there to see the Blues Brothers show, but there's been no Blues Brothers. And so they're ready. They're primed for this. Blues Brothers come up, and they meet the guy's wife, and 
they try to make a case for why he should come with them to Chicago. She doesn't want him to go away. She doesn't want any of this. She's angry as hell. And so she breaks into a song about, um, don't piss me off. Don't, the song we use is, Don't Nobody Bring Me No Bad News from The Wiz. I didn't use the Aretha Franklin song from the movie because I don't want people comparing the scene to the movie. I want to get the same feeling, but I want the audience to pay attention because this is something they've never seen before. So we sing, Don't Nobody Bring Me No Bad News, and just like in the movie, the Blues Brothers spontaneously start doing choreography to that because that was one of the, my favorite things in the film. And uh, then finally she finishes that song and the Blues Brothers finally make their case and she says, you don't know nothing about the blues and they now they cut loose. Now they sing Soul Man and a couple of songs. And by the time they finish this, they can go down to the audience and the audience will follow them in a line more dancing up and down the street having the time of their lives. Because they've been there and seen this scene and they've become a part of it. It's the show is about is about the Blues Brothers and their influence on the people around them, and they've seen all the elements that they love from the film. Um, since I left the park, uh, they've had a number of different directors who come in and quote fixed the show. Uh, they took out most of the plot, and they changed the songs to be the ones that uh, the same ones that we know. And it's it still works. It still works. It's still an effective show. Um, but it doesn't have uh, a lot of the same emotion, the same effect in the audience, um, and uh, which I find a little sad. But um, that, uh, that's an example that I use in the book when I tell the whole story in detail about how we created that show. And uh, that's, uh, yeah, you're right about the, the important thing is not to recreate the movie, but to recreate within the audience the feeling of the movie exactly. and to make that a personal experience for them. So, um, what I'm surprised about there, Ron, is that you chose to focus on on that element of the film when working on the show, and not the motorway chase. <laughs> well, how are you going to do that? With the, how are you going to involve the audience in the motorway chase? I mean, I, if you look at if you look at the uh, the new Fast and Furious attractions that are in Hollywood Universal and are coming out here, you could do it that way. But then it's not the Blues Brothers. <laughs> That's barely the Fast and the Furious, from what I've seen. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, maybe maybe that's why. Besides, my job is to ask why things aren't being done, not not explain yeah. how they're going to be done. <laughs> Chris, I know that you. Uh, sorry, no, uh, Paul P Dubs. I know you had a question, so I'll let you. Yeah, your uh, Ron, I believe you were you were there at the opening day at Disneyland. Yes, sir. Uh, July eighteenth, nineteen fifty five. Uh, what I was what I was going to ask was uh, obviously. You've been there over the years, from from when they first opened to working through it until until recently. How, how have you seen the parks change? Have they do they still feel the same to you, or or does it feel like a different place now? The change has been uh, it's been a, a twofold change in the the scale and complexity of the park, and in the audience that they're playing to. I uh, remember back in 1955, audiences uh, were uh, t- Disneyland was based on television. They brought to brought to life the themes from the Disneyland television show, from popular television shows. You know, uh, two fifths of Disneyland was devoted to Frontierland because of Davy Crockett, Gunsmoke, um, Wagon Train. All those TV shows was very very big at the time. Um, uh, so. 
and the audience was simpler. They were simpler people. They hadn't been exposed to all the technology. They hadn't been exposed to all the massive, massive film franchises that we have now. And so it was a different matter of entertaining those people. Um, as the park grew more and more advanced technologically, and the society became more and more sophisticated and more jaded, uh, the park had to become more and more potent. And um, as Walt uh, found the technologies to bring more of his visions to life, we got Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion. Um, and uh, it grew in that respect. Then uh, one of the big changes was when Mr. Eisner came on board and decided that uh, the purpose of the parks should be 20% uh, annual growth for the stockholders. And so everything became a profit center. And we had to find uh, new ways to um, make money. And that caused a lot of uh, changes, uh, primarily financial. Uh, but um, at the same time, uh, new, more new technologies came along, more franchises came along, and the Imagineers, uh, the second wave of Imagineers came in. Uh, these are the people like Tony Baxter who were inspired by the original Imagineers. They took that inspiration and they created the next generation of Disney attractions. Splash Mountain, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, Indiana Jones Experience, uh, Space Mountain. Um, all of these things started to come along and uh, more and more Imagineers actually moved outside of the parks and started working for other companies. That's where we get the people who are designing all the wonderful stuff for Universal Studios now. They're all former Imagineers. Um, and the audiences continue to get more and more sophisticated, more and more jaded. Now you walk into the park and everybody's got a cell phone in their hand. Everybody's videotaping everything. They're not even looking where they're going. They're not even looking at what they paid to see. They're busy videotaping, which to me is just complete idiocy, but what are you going to do? Um, and then with, a, uh, with the way crowds are, and then the, the big change, of course, that uh, in the last few years has been the Internet. Um, every ride that you could possibly want to see is brilliantly videoed and put up on the on YouTube, and um, now the uh, the the company has to deal with that. They have to create shows that are either absolutely verboten, you can't film them, or shows that are made to be filmed. Um, uh, one of the great examples is the new Frozen ride at Epcot Center. Uh, is just a brilliant piece of work and looks great on YouTube. Um, it makes you want to go there and see it. Uh, so there have been a lot of changes. Um, the, for me, the big change is I was lucky enough to be working at Disneyland in uh, 1980 at the Golden Horseshoe. And um, I got to work with the people who had worked with Walt. And uh, it was a very different uh, feeling around the park. People treated you differently. People treated each other differently. And uh, I, then I was at Epcot when uh, Mr. Reisner came in. And a lot of things change, and just in the way that the feeling around the park, the you still have because the because the parks don't pay that well, and because the work is so challenging, the people who are working there are the people who want to work there very badly, who need to work there. They have the spirit of Walt Disney with them, and they carry that with them at all times. And so the quality of the service for the most part, has not changed. Um, it's still people out there putting themselves out because they love doing it, because they love people, and they love the jobs, and they love the, the heritage of Walt Disney. Um, so that hasn't changed uh, as much as, uh, as, as other things may have. Wow. Did, you, um, did you ever get to meet or see Walt Disney in the flesh? 
saw the top of his head one time. Uh, and uh, shortly before he passed, I was visiting the park with my family, and uh, I was about oh, 13 or 14 at that time, and my favorite thing to do at Disneyland was to leave my family alone and go off by myself. And uh, so I, we got to Town Square, and I said to my, uh, my dad, oh, listen, I'm, I'm going off by myself. I'll see you guys, meet you guys over here later on. I got up on the second floor of the omnibus, and the omnibus was pulling away down Main Street, and uh, my sister was running after the omnibus going, Ronnie, Ronnie, look, and she points. She points to this cluster of people off to one side, and I look over, and I found out later that in the middle of that crowd was Walt Disney. So I, I saw the top of his head. Um, I got to meet his daughter at the Disney Family Museum in San Francisco. Um, I also met his son-in-law a couple times. And Roy Disney, Walt's brother, uh, drove past me one day at CalArts. But Ron, that's why you're eminently right to play Walt's head. You've actually seen the real thing. I've <laughs> seen Walt's head as well. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, part of it, yeah. I never thought of that before. That's Not funny. in the frozen state, but... No. So the, thing is, so the thing is, if this was like the, the um, Fur Adventures of Walt's Frozen Lake, you, yeah. you'd, you'd, you probably wouldn't have been any good for the role. Let's be honest. <laughs> but, you know, as it's ahead. Now, all this talk, we, we've talked Disneyland, we've talked Universal, both sides, and Walt Disney World. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I feel I would love to have a trip. And if I was planning a trip right now, you know who I'd be doing that with, don't you? <laughs> I, Wendy, I'd love to go around with you. Wendy Pratt at Magical Journeys Travel, of course. That's who. <laughs> our third sponsor. Um, if you mention... Tell you what, Ron, uh, have you ever heard a show be more professional than this one? Don't answer that question. It, it, it's not <laughs> professional, but smooth. So smooth. Yep, smooth as crunchy peanut butter. That's us. And if you mention that you heard this ad on Diz After Dark, you'll get $25 off your deposit of any trip package. So don't be the one up at midnight trying to get your reservations at Be Our Guest, your Fast Pass for Anna and Elsa, or your Fast Pass, of course, at the, uh, the Frozen... Fro- Frozen? Yes, the Frozen attraction. Sean Connery there. That's the one. The Frozen attraction. Oh, Frozen head. <laughs> That's why Sean Connery's not doing it. Um, then let Wendy take the sting out of that for you. You can find on the Twitter at WP Magic Journeys or at WPMagicJourneys.com. Yes, there you go. Um, now, um, we are running a little bit longer than I... Not that I was hoping to, because I'm glad that it, this show's been as great as it has been. But there are a few things that uh, have been happening recently I wanted to kind of touch on before we ended tonight. Um, right. Has anyone seen the um, success, in inverted commas, of uh, the big friendly giant, the BFG? I'm going tonight. You're going tonight? Yep. We don't get it in England for another two weeks. We get it just our Finding Dory opens up uh, next next Friday, I think, in the UK. Um, and the BFG comes out the week after. But uh, it opened last weekend. It was July 4th weekend uh, last week that it opened. And it's been a bit of a bomb, hasn't it, really? I have not heard that. I have not heard that from anybody. I No, uh, the reviews of it have actually been very good. Yeah. It's been well reviewed, but um, it's it's been one of it, uh, Spielberg's lowest openings in uh, quite a while. Ouch! Yeah. Well, I mean, look at look at the other thing. You got Finding Dory. Oh, which uh, is, is massive, massive, which is massive. 
And um, I mean, there's there's a lot of good stuff out right now. I believe I firmly believe that we're in a kind of a entertainment renaissance, especially in, in television here in the in the states. And uh, there's a lot of good films being made out there. So I I will put it down to that. Uh, with with films like the the things that Spielberg creates, a lot of the things that Disney creates, um, I think it's the it's more the long uh, the long view. Uh, that uh, judges success than uh, whether they top thing on a particular week. No, I think you're. I think you're right. I mean, it's it, whatever happens, it will do well on video. It will do <laughs> video. Yeah, because people still buy VHS tapes, don't they? <laughs> uh, it will do well on home release um, when it gets released on DVD, Blu-ray, and uh, Laserdisc or whatever. But um, yeah, I think you're right. It's a very crowded marketplace at the moment. I mean, you know, Independence Day, which would hype into be one of the big. Um, the big, uh, big adventure, a uh, big event films of the summer. That's also flopped quite, uh, quite badly as well. Um, and I just think there's a lot of competition. But Disney have had so this is Disney's kind of second notable uh, bomb this year because obviously Alice in Wonderland didn't do very well either, although that was uh, not as critically well received. Um, mm-hmm. But um, at the same time. Zootopia or Zootropolis, depending on the part of the world you're in, has done mm-hmm. massive numbers. The Force Awakens obviously was a massive success, and they've got Rogue One coming out later this year. So Disney, I don't think, are too bothered about this. I, I do think, though, going back to what I was saying earlier, that Pete's Dragon, which comes out in August, looks terrible. And I'll be shocked <laughs> if that does uh, any better than Alice or uh, or the BFG. But at the same, you know, the other thing as well with the BFG, and we noticed this today, is that for a Disney film, there's not a single bit of merchandise available for it in the Disney store. At all, there's nothing. We went to uh, Toys R Us, other toy stores are available, um, and they had a cuddly toy of the BFG available um, from the books, but it's nothing to do with the film. Nothing to do with the film at all. And there's not really been much advertising for it. I think they weren't really gearing it to be a hit, to be honest with you. But you'd have thought Spielberg and Disney would have been a a big combination. So yeah. it's it's strange why it's kind of been kind of shoehorned away. Um, and like you say, Ron, you know, Finding Dory was has been massive, and it, you know, I, I don't think anyone doubted it was going to be a big hit. So I'm not really sure what they've the purpose was of putting them in release so close together just mm-hmm. a bit of a strange one to me but uh, but there you go well i hope you enjoy it because um i'm really looking forward to it to be to be completely honest and my daughter's looking forward to it when she sees uh, the trailer for it we put on mm-hmm. we put it on youtube for her she's uh, excited all right she's only three but you know she can you know she's mm-hmm. impressed that's enough for me <laughs> saw the trailer thought it looked quite good we, thought, we saw it tonight actually thought, yeah. thought it looked quite good that's what I mean. Like you know, I think I think they've done it as as well as you could do that story. You know, yeah. so fair play to them. Um, and I think Chris, did you did you have a, something you wanted to talk about? Was it Paul? It was me. It was a. So uh, cool. In fact, it was it was quite appropriate. We thought um, the the rumored changes of a future world that have popped up in the last week or so um, with the. The rumor of Guardians of the Galaxy going in. Yes, I think every attraction, every attraction has been rumored to be turned into a Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sitch's Great Escape is going to be Groot's Great Escape, isn't it? That <laughs> would be wonderful. Uh, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be any worse. Let's be honest. <laughs> Certainly not. 
I mean, Guardians, I think you're right there, Ron, actually, about the fact that, yes, we had the, the talk of the Tower of Terror. Has, has that been confirmed for California? Or not? No, I think it's, it's still going round and round as to whether mm. it's happening or not. Mm. I hope they don't do that. Yeah. That's well, a bad idea. I, I mean, the thing is, I, I love Guardians of the Galaxy, and I'm really excited about seeing Volume 2. But I, I don't really... I don't know how you can fit a ride like that into uh, a drop ride. Really, I think it'd be a bit odd. I don't think I don't see how it could really work. The one, the other rumor, which is, um, what's the Epcot attraction? Mission Space. Energy Adventure. Yeah, Ellen. Space. said, said Mission Space is also going to be Guardians of the Galaxy. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I heard Mission Space as well. Yeah, Mission Space came out first, and then, then the rumour seemed to change within about 24 hours. So, being, um, <laughs> excellent. So, Rocket and Groot's Energy Adventure. Yeah. Very, very... Bill Nye, the Marvel guy. <laughs> I don't... I, I have a strict policy that I don't try to second-guess the company. Um, because every time, most times when we try to second guess them, like for example, Frozen is going to be a lousy show, it's going to be a terrible ride, it doesn't belong at Epcot Center, and then it opens and it's absolutely uh, a home run, an e-ticket, a great, great, great show, an amazing show. And um, we don't, if we in the public don't know what we don't know. And so if I see the trailer for Pete's Dragon, yes, it looks different than than the original Pete's Dragon, but I don't judge it. I wait till I see the film before I form an opinion, and uh, because of the internet and the the this, it's fun to be out there and to, to give people opinions. That's you know everybody's everybody's a critic, but the problem is most of this criticism is, is spent before we actually see what the film is. Uh, Ghostbusters is going to be coming out shortly, and everybody's de- determined that this is going to be one of the world's worst films ever made, and they've ruined my child li- childhood and all this other stuff. But the fact is, we haven't seen it. And also, we were talking. I was actually talking about this the other week, weren't we, about Ghostbusters? Because the thing is, the, the oh, it's ruined my childhood argument. Ghostbusters, the original Ghostbusters, is still there. Yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. They're not, not gone anywhere. And delete all the previous versions. Yeah. They're not gonna. They're not gonna individually like wipe your memory while you're asleep and think. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure there was a film I remember from 1984 about Ghostbusters as well. But this is the only film I can ever remember now with these women in it. You know, it still exists. It's still there. Um, so I'm with you. Um, you're right. Maybe we're being a bit harsh on Peach Dragon. It's just it looks so terrible, and I'm not comparing the original to the new one because it looks like a completely different story but it doesn't look like a dragon it looks like a furry a big furry creature yeah, but it doesn't they, look like a dragon decided give, they decided to give him fur yeah that's but, i think that's um, the problem that's my problem I, with it it doesn't look I know like a, a bit i know a bit about dragons having worked with one and i did a lot of research on dragons yeah and and i did a lot of research into dragons and dragons can look just about any way you want them to look and still be a dragon I, I can guess why. I can guess why <laughs> they can they can do that. That's because they never bloody existed, did they? But that's another argument for another show on another day. I don't know. I, I know a guy who says he's married to one, but never mind. <laughs> that's a different episode. Well, he's not on here to defend himself, so no, we can't he's not. really, or or herself, so we we can't really speculate too much. Um, Ron, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I hope it's been enjoyable for you. Um, 
yeah, I, I know it's probably not the it's a little bit different to other podcasts that you've done, other than the fact yeah. that it's, it's so professional. Um, but we hope it's been enjoyable for you. And before you go, um, if you just want to, um, you know, plug your book or plug anything else, uh, one last time, that'd be great. Well, uh, keep an eye out for the further adventures of Walt's Frozen Head. Um, it's going to be by the time this airs, it's going to be too late to kick in for the Kickstarter. But uh, keep an eye out. This is a terrific film. It's going to be a lot of fun for people. Um, then uh, my book, From Dreamer to Dreamfinder, A Life and Lessons Learned in 40 Years Behind a Name Tag, is up on Amazon or any of the various uh, services. Or you can order it directly from Bamboo Forest Publishing. And I have so thoroughly enjoyed this, I can't tell you. I've done quite a few podcasts through the years, but this one has been a real standout for me with the questions and the, the attitude of all of you. It's been a total joy. Yeah. Well, thank you. I I kind of take that as well as an amazing compliment. So, Aiko and everyone else, thank you very much. But also a kind of I'd come back on if asked. So you've not officially said that we can't hold you to it, but I'm going to kind of hold you to it if that's okay. Please do. I'd be happy to come back anytime. <laughs> well, certainly right. when the when the film is coming, um, you know, is getting nearer to release, we'll have you and, and Ben. Uh, both back on because I know Ben wants to come back on the show as well so I think that'd be a nice uh, double header but uh, it's been so entertaining this episode Um, we do try and differentiate I can't even say that word so I'm not even going to bother we do try and be a little bit different to other podcasts we don't like to try and do the same thing so I'm glad that you've taken it in that way Um, and you know, sometimes with guests is a little bit of hard work trying to get them into the spirit of things and trying to get them into the flow of conversation. Uh, you, sir, have been an absolute delight in that regard and uh, thoroughly entertaining. And I hope that um, our, our listeners enjoy it, have enjoyed this episode as much as we have making it. So thank you so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, we look forward to having you back on in the future. So thank you. Thank you, Nick. Thanks, everybody. And Thanks, on Ryan. that note, um, we better say goodbye. So. Um, can, I, can I just say one quick thing? You bloody well can, sir. Go on. They've only got six hundred and fifty-five dollars to go to get it backed. Oh, now yeah, it's, it's what during time the close? show. What's going close? What time's it close? Six hours from now. Well, this show is going out in about an hour, if not sooner. Oh. So, oh, we need to plug. Yeah, plug, yeah, plug. yeah. So as soon and as soon as it comes out, we all link to it. We all tweet it and everything like that. So. We might not be able to get the whole money out there, but if we can just contribute a little bit to that and give it a final push, we certainly will do. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what the final stats are. But, uh, well, in that case, we're better in the show. Otherwise, I won't be able to get it out, will I? So um, if you want to speak to us, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Disaster Dark. Email us at podcast at disasterdark.com. Uh, websites, www.disasterdark.com. Um, other places you can find us. Unofficial Dad's Army on Facebook. Look for the picture and the thing. You've got details you've got our details thank you for joining us and we'll see you next week with another universal after dark i think yeah yeah let's let's just say that and and we'll see what happens in a week's time thanks everyone thanks thanks ron bye thanks ron growing older is mandatory growing up is optional this after dark the podcast that's nearly the same as all the others